more than 90 years, St. Cloud State Hockey has had a home in the Granite City. Boasting two Hockey Hall of Famers in Frank Brimsek and the late Herb Brooks, many players and coaches have made their mark on St. Cloud State hockey lore. With former St. Cloud State greats like Mark Parrish and Brett Hedekin, to more recent standouts like Jack Ashan and Jimmy Schultz, two Patty Kazmaier Award finalists and 16 Division I All-Americans have paved the way for current St. Cloud State men's and women's teams to continue the Huskies hockey tradition. This week's guest is one of many who have made their mark on St. Cloud State hockey history as the Huskies Warming House podcast presents this week's Healthy Scratch interview segment. Healthy Scratch interview segment for episode number 49. Uh, joining me, Nick Maxson, as well as Ben Holden, the couple of guys that helped us interview our upcoming guest in this show. Uh, ben, maybe I'll kick it to you. What do we have to look forward to for uh, this week's guest, who I hear you've maybe uh, met once before we interviewed him last week? Yeah, we've uh, we've done a few hundred games together. So, uh, Dave, like you've never heard him before, next on the Huskies Warming House podcast. No, um, <laughs> it, it, there is there is some truth to that, and the boys will yep. back me up. Yep. No, he just talks a lot about, uh, you know, we get his thoughts on the tournament, uh, what he thinks they should do. And by the way, I'm just going to tease it with this. I think part of his formula for picking the tournament for the NCAA is genius. I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, Nick, what, what is one thing that we should tell our fans that will be different from this episode as opposed to other episodes as far as the colorful language that Dave provides so elegantly for us in this show? Well, yeah, he's a, he's a true New Yorker. We'll put it that way. So <laughs> um, uh, there'll, be some, there'll be some fun explicit language, but it's, uh, it's all because it's Dave and it's great. Um, we, and also to tease, he also has some good thoughts on the growth of the USA hockey and how well they've been able yeah. to compete especially at the sort of the national international level, I should say with the world junior championships, but I'll leave him to explain it. It was a really good interview and it was really fun to record it when he with Dave. Yes, it was some really great St. Cloud state talk as well. But like we mentioned, there is some explicit content in this one. So don't say we didn't warn you, but also say that we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Episode 49, Dave Star. to this week's Healthy Scratch interview segment. And joining us this week is current CBS college hockey analyst. And he would say he is also a Healthy Scratch that sums up his career. <laughs> joining us is Dave Starman. Dave, again, thanks for joining us here on the show. Oh, happy to be a part of it. Long time coming. I'm glad we got it together. Dave, <laughs> I guess if I can jump in here, Dave, uh, we were talking a little bit pre-show before you came on, before our podcast last week. And we have a little clip, I think, that we'd like to play for you here, oh, Dave. Uh, this is just us kind of talking about uh, what to expect from our uh, from our future guests that we have on today. So uh, um, maybe take a listen here. So, okay. So does Dave Starman, does he, does he <laughs> complain like a New Yorker, like when he like travels places? Or is he a pretty even keel guy? Honest truth? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but he didn't play he didn't finish the clip man i complained too yeah well you said you say it with him on here so uh dave is that an honest assessment of uh of you on a road trip i'll tell you what i won't say the trip because i don't want to offend the people but there was one trip where i got into the town before benny did and it was one of the rare if ever times where i didn't make my own hotel reservations because that is oh boy now a staple of my life I get to the hotel. I texted Benny. I said, did you land yet? He said, yeah. Why? I said, because the hotel sucks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't off the plane yet. I already ruined his mood. So <laughs> he starts complaining. Like, what's the matter with us? I give him a laundry list. He goes, that sounds just great. But uh, 
do I do I complain <laughs> on the road about accommodations? Uh, not anymore because I make my own, I make my own flights, <laughs> I make my own reservations, I make my own car rent, I do everything myself now. So the only person that I can complain to is me, and that's it. But I will say that in the past there were some accommodations where I would say to Benny, start finding a different hotel. This one sucks. I'm moving out. Well, the one first of all, it, I haven't seen you since we were in Omaha together. So it's good to right. see you, uh, my man. And uh, yeah, I, when, when Dave's referring to there, I was like, oh, what did I get myself into here, man? <laughs> so. And it turned, just, it turned out okay. Like we, it like, did. We, we, we turned it into a little paradise, but at first glance, it was like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> so I, fun, man. So I guess I, um, to, to jump into um, an interesting topic and an interesting story uh, that revolves around St. Cloud State hockey, which we got to touch on at least a couple of things, I think, because, you know, this is a St. Cloud State podcast at heart. You know, we've seen some good draft picks in the National Hockey League. We've seen some bad draft picks in the National Hockey League. A couple of questionable ones, you know, a guy like Ryan Paling comes to mind. Don't know who thought that he should be drafted. I don't know. Um, Dave, can you fill listeners uh, in on that story of how Ryan Paling ended up in the first round with the Montreal Canadiens? Well, we, we, that year I was part of the staff and we knew we were drafting late that year. And our two head amateur scouts were Trevor Timmons and Shane Trilla. Trevor's still there. And Shane just took over the director of amateur scouting for the Florida Panthers. And one of the reasons I've been on Florida to be really good down the road with, with Shane at the helm there. And I knew that Paling was in the mix because I had seen him a ton and our guys were starting to come in and see him a lot more. And his name was starting to float around. And obviously with me being our college guy, you know, a lot of questions were, were coming my way about him. And the funniest thing is we're at the draft and, you know, for, for a while, I knew we were picking late the first round. So I was kind of walking around through the halls and talking to some agents about some college free agency and just putting the works together for, you know, starting for the upcoming season. And I walked back up to our booth just in time for us to pick. And I get a text from Ben and Ben's like, you guys are drafting paling, right? And I don't say a word. They were and on the clock for 30 seconds. Sorry, Dave. They were on the clock for 30 seconds, if that. And that's when I texted him. Because, yeah, hey, you guys drafted Paling. So, I, like, I, you know, I didn't say a word. And <laughs> and the buzz is going around like, hey, last chance for anybody to call off Paling. We're like, hey, we're in. And so then we make the pick. And then I texted to Ben, yes. <laughs> as Burge is up on a stage getting ready to go, I'm like, Yep. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, I, you know, I know he's been up and down and I still think he's going to be a really good NHL player. And my feeling is if you can get a solid 10 year number three center on a good team with the 25th pick in the first round, you made a really good pick. So I, I will stand by that pick and whether or not he does it in Montreal, who has really developed a lot of centerman depth between drafts and, and the minor leagues. I, I don't know what, where he shakes out in the long run. Cause I'm not there anymore, but I will say this somewhere in the NHL, He's going to nail down a really solid number three center position, and he's going to prove that he was a pretty good pick. Yeah, a guy that I, um, I guess Ben and I were kind of talking about too. Uh, someone that Ben is going to get a chance to see this weekend, hopefully, is Cole Caulfield, um, another guy, Montreal Canadiens draft pick. Can you kind of talk about him a little bit and uh, what you've seen out of him? Cole is Cole's electric, and <laughs> we were talking a little bit before about you know, like every once in a while I'll turn to Ben and I'll say, Hey, do you know this guy reminds me of and It could be somebody current or somebody that is so way off the charts that nobody will know. It's funny. I was talking to Tony Granato about Cole, like shortly after uh, the world juniors last year, cause I was doing a lot of games for the big 10 network last year too. And you know, he said to me, he goes, he's like one of those guys like Brett Hull who could like disappear in the offensive zone 
and then reappear in the right spot in time to grab a pass and shoot. And I said to, to, to Tony, I said, okay, not in the same category, but Derek King was that way too when he played for the Islanders. And Derek was a 30 and 40 goal scorer at one point. And there's, you know, there's an art form to, to getting the offensive zone and getting behind the defense and disappearing and reappearing and finding good soft ice and finding good spots. And to me, Cole Caulfield is one of those players that can really do that. Now, this year, I think he's added another layer to his game because I think he's got the puck more on his stick now uh, south of the red line than he did at any point last year. And the thing that I saw from him that I really liked was during the World Junior Championships, he was playing the bumper role on the power play. That's the middle guy of a, of a 1-3-1. And every team that the U.S. played against, he caused so much confusion for them because they knew they had to keep an eye on him. But he wasn't necessarily over-involved. But when he did get involved, whether it was chasing a loose puck or jumping into open space, getting a pass, moving it back, he created so much coverage issues that he opened up so much room for guys like Kaliev and Zegras or York at the point that he was worth his weight and goal, whether or not the puck was on a stick or not. To me, the mark of a really good player is that you're as dangerous without the puck as you are with it. And I think that is what Cole Caulfield is starting to become. Uh, Dave, I want to stay on this topic a little bit of uh, USA hockey because you had an opportunity to see Cole Caulfield with the U.S. junior team who took home a gold medal uh, this past December. But I want to kind of get your thoughts on the American game as a whole because, you know, at, at one time, this was a, a Canadian-dominated uh, sport with the World Juniors. And now with the developmental stuff, especially through USA Hockey, um, it's kind of become almost a two-headed race to the top between the U.S. and Canada. I guess, what have you seen in terms of development from USA Hockey that's allowed the program to rise and be as competitive as it has been over the last 10 to 15 years? Uh, anybody who's served as one of our ADM regional managers over the last 10, 11, 12 years, however long we've, we've, we've had this up and running, deserves a lot of credit. And Kevin McLaughlin and Kenny Roush at USA Hockey now are still shepherding this initiative that continues to grow year by year and the addition of the ADM goaltending department that Phil Ozair was first running and now Steve Thompson has taken over you know it's added another element and you know what's happened is we have just developed this bigger pool of players and we've also developed a bigger pool of bigger players which is interesting because for years what we were seeing especially at the peewee level when age started when players started to grow we're starting to see the domination of some of these bigger kids over these little kids because these little kids were scared to death to touch the puck because these bigger kids are running roughshod all over them. And it's like Stan Van Gundy once said about youth basketball. He said, you know, find the biggest guy you can, stuff him under the net. God forbid he should ever touch the ball, but just put him under the net. Well, we were doing the same thing with some of our bigger players and just letting them run around terrorizing the little guys. And they were concussing a lot of these kids out of ever wanting to play the game again. So through the science, what we USA hockey determined as a study through the Mayo clinic and Dr. Stewart and cognitive development played a part in it. We took the hitting out of Peewee now with full checking out of Peewee, there's still contact, mm. but we took full checking out of Peewee. What did that do? What allowed players to, to skate with their head down a little bit so they could see the puck. But more importantly, what it did was it took these smaller players fear out of getting clobbered and cheap shotted away. So now they can go and fully develop their skills the way that they should be doing. But conversely, it forced a lot of those bigger kids that sometimes aren't as coordinated as the smaller guys because they're growing into their body. It forced them to become better players too. So now you're developing a much different pool of players. And those big guys couldn't be one-trick ponies where they just relied on their size to keep themselves in lineups. They had to develop too. And I started noticing it when we used to do the National Select 16 camps. We'd have guys come in that were 6'1", 6'2", that were as skilled, if not more so, than some of the smaller guys are probably developed a little bit faster and were ahead of them on the curve. Long and short of it is 
right now, I think the U.S. could send two teams to the Road Junior Championship, and I think our second team could probably compete for a spot in the top six, much like Canada's been able to do for years. And to me, that is the biggest compliment I can give USA Hockey and a lot of our coaches on the player development side is that we don't need to take our 20 best anymore because now anywhere between one and 35 in terms of the depth chart of our best players in the country, any of those guys could fill in on our roster and we could still go win a gold medal. And that I never thought we would ever say. Well, this is the Huskies warming house uh, partner. I'm still going to call you a partner, man. Um, so let's <laughs> talk about St. Cloud a little bit. You and I saw them their first game of the year. We saw them a lot when we were in Omaha together. And think back to that first goal they scored. It was Perbix on about a 70-foot stretch pass to Fitzgerald. He goes in and buries one. And I remember looking at you, and we, and we talked about that, the difference we saw in their team, uh, the speed and the level of, 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 of energy they were playing with. And, and you've seen them a bunch more, as I did too in Omaha. Uh, what's your, what are your initial thoughts when you, when you think of their team and what they've done this year, Dave? Speed. I mean, my first thought with them is speed. First of all, they're extremely well coached. And the second part of it is I, I just look at how fast they are. And, you know, you can go through three or four lines, you can go through their back end and, and they can bring a lot of speed, but they've also, to me, have a size and an edge component to them, which might get a little bit underrated. I mean, sometimes when you're a high school team and some of your guys are a little bit on the smaller side, people forget the fact that you could be a bigger team with skill and look at some of the players they have on the roster. I mean, they, they, I mean, they got some big rigs there that can really play. And I also think that the evolution of certain players has been a big deal. Brodzinski is one Brodzinski's become less of a one trick pony, a little bit more of a complete player. I like him down the middle, whether it be Walker or Hedges or Cronulla hammers done a nice job on that fourth line. I, I, the Finns and Brodzinski were great together. They got separated and, and they, but they've continued each to, to, to excel. Micah Miller's become a wonderful story as he continues to develop. And then when you look at their back end, between Donahue, Purvix, Bushy, Meyer, I mean, that's a good group. Jaycox gives you a lot of character to give you some meanness. Uh, Trable's a guy that can move pucks and, and be strong and get him out of his own end and, and extend some offense. So, I mean, like you, you look around their roster, and everywhere you look, they've got players that fit the mold of what Brett Larson wants. You know, I, I want to talk about one player specifically, Dave. And like Ben did mention, we are a St. Cloud State podcast. And uh, I, I don't I don't say this to call you out on this. I say this because I really want to value your input with your expertise as far as uh, the goaltending side of things. And one guy that's been really up and down this year for the Huskies has been David Rennick. We've seen some really great games from David. We've seen some really poor performances from David. And you mentioned one of the things in the pod about his stance and kind of how he's acclimated to that modern goaltending stance, especially with the positioning of his glove and how you mentioned that you aren't the biggest fan of it. Can you talk about, um, first of all, David Rennick's stance and then why you prefer a different stance than what David has and then overall what you think of David's play uh, so far this season? See, he's too happy for me. I like goalies that are miserable <laughs> and throwing up. You know, like that's he's still a Ron Hextall, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I, I like the goalies that are nervous and puking before games. He, you know, guys like him and Cam Johnson and Adam Shield, they just they're too happy for me. It's it's a it's a weird phenomenon. I'm trying to get used to this, but when I when I look at David Rennick in, in all seriousness, like I see a goalie who's extremely athletic. That's number one. I think his stance has gotten a little bit more balanced to the point where where he's able to move back and forth and get a little bit more of an aggressive depth when he wants to, but he could also get back to the net a little bit better. So between the, the balance in his stance and his, and his ability now to, to really see cut hard and move around the crease, I think that's helped him. But, but what I've seen in him, the two things that bother me about him are this. Number one is when he pushes to his glove side, 
he has a tough time getting back to his stick side. And if he bites a first fake and it drags him to his glove side, I think it hurts him because he can't recover back to the other way as fast as some of the other guys I've seen. So I think that's part one part of his game that probably has to get a little bit cleaned up is being able to put on the brakes on a good butterfly slide. But when it comes to the glove hand, I, this is an argument that we have had in goalie nation with USA hockey for a long time. And that is proper positioning of your glove hand. And if you think back to you know, some of the goalies through the eighties and the nineties and where they had their gloves, most of the, and granted the position has changed dramatically. So we'll, we'll start there, but most goaltenders, if not all had their gloves off to the side of their body and their the t- tip of their fingers. And you can see my hand were pointing more in like in a three o'clock, type of direction. Now you start to see kids with their gloves up here or up here or out in front of them. And what's happening is this. Think about the baseball example. I don't know any baseball coach that has ever told their players to, when they get in the batter's box to stand at the front of the batter's box. Where do they always tell them to stand? They tell them to stand at the back of the batter's box. So they get another half a second to a second to see the ball and determine if they want to swing and where. For goalies, I find this, the problem with keeping your gloves so far ahead of your body in that upright position as goalies are swatting flies as opposed to pulling it back and catching the ball like like a shortstop or second baseman would or even a catcher behind the plate. And I, I don't think a lot of our kids are playing as much baseball as they used to, so that's part one. And I have no idea how much baseball they played either, either you know, in the, in the Czech Republic or Slovakia. But yeah. but when, when it comes to glove hands, I find goalies are moving their pie hands towards the puck instead of away from the puck so that they could see it into their hand, pull it back, soften it, and catch it. And catch gloves are bigger and stiffer than they used to be, so it's a different feel. Getting the puck into your web, I think, is a little bit more of a challenge. But to me, why would you grab the puck here when you can grab it more over here, giving yourself an extra half a second or second to track it better, cushion it, and hold on to it? The catch glove has become like a like a second blocker at times. And and as we joked, you want to throw a name out there that nobody will ever remember, like Bill Durham when he played in the 40s and 50s, used to wear two gloves. They were almost the same. They are almost like blockers and – and, and trappers at the same time, I don't think the catch glove should be a second blocker. I think the catch glove should catch pucks. It's something a lot of goalies are not doing, and I think a lot of it has to do with the positioning that some of the newer goalie coaches are teaching them to put it in, which I am doing my damnedest to make sure they stop doing. Dave, I want to keep the, the Huskies theme, but, uh, you know, David Rennick certainly has been a backbone of this hockey club, but I want to move uh, kind of back a little bit with the team itself. Uh, you know, we're talking about the NCHC playoffs coming up here. We know it's going to be held in Grand Forks. Uh, one thing that's interesting that I saw is if they were to start today, the seeding is St. Cloud opening single elimination would be hosting Western Michigan, a team who has held their number throughout the entire course of this regular season. And I think Huskies fans want to know, why does Western Michigan give this Husky squad such a tough time? Is it the style of game that they play? Is it the personnel on the ice? What is it about Western Michigan that makes this such a tough matchup for the Cardinal and Black? Here's my question. Will the FCC be listening to this podcast? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good, because here's your answer. Western Michigan just beats the ever-loving shit out of St. Cloud every time they play them from a physical perspective, especially when yeah. it happens in, in Kalamazoo. Yep. The style matchup here is interesting because Western has always had this big, physical, lumbering team that was okay skill-wise, but never great. Last year, I thought their skill combination with the snarl that they brought and their size yep. was at times overwhelming. And I think they've got a similar kind of team. Maybe their skill level is not as, as high as it was last year when they, when they really had that great top six. But mm-hmm. they're still a team that can be really physical and really nasty, really hard-edged, and they get after you like crazy, and they're, they're just a doggone bone mentality for a team, you know, with the old expression, the old lunch pail kind of team. And, and that's what they are. 
St. Cloud State is a team that I've always found to be very, very skilled, to be very high-end, to be very quick. Uh, not necessarily the biggest team, but we talked about how they filled in some of those holes. But I find a team like Western Michigan to be relentless. I think they play the underdog role very well. I think they sometimes take a exception to the fact that they may not have the same pedigree as some of the old WCHA blue blood programs that have gained a lot of success. St. Cloud State has always been a program that's been very good. The last five, six, seven years, you can make a case they probably had two teams that were the most talented teams in the country. So when Western comes into that big sheet, they struggle a little bit, but they play hard. You get them on an Olympic – or you get them on an nhl size sheet like in Grand Forks. To me, that is a very even matchup between two really well-coached teams that both have a lot of skill, but you have to give the physical edge just a little bit to Western. Before, before we move on to uh, um, NCAA pieces a little bit, I want to I talk about kicking the shit out of people here, Dave. Um, I, believe you, I believe you do have a pretty good story for us. Uh, back, back in your heyday, uh, a brawl between Huntsville and Macon. Um, that uh, might be an interesting story for our listeners. Well, when, when I was in the Central Hockey League, and that, the Central Hockey League was a double-A league at the time. It was a pretty good league back then. And we were, we were an expansion team that came into the 96-97 season, and Huntsville did too. Huntsville came out of the old Southern Pro League, and you know we came in as a pure expansion team. And for some reason, those two teams hated each other from, from day one. And every time we went to Huntsville, I mean, it was just an absolute gong show. When they came to us, it was the same. And we were a pretty skilled team. Like, we didn't have a lot of muscle. We had two or three guys that could go. But, you know, we were kind of built in the mold of the old Montreal Canadiens. We were very French and very quick and very skilled and ran our team much in that respect with John Parrish Jr. as our head coach and, and me as the associate head coach. And Huntsville was just like 1970s slap shot style and had a roster to fill it. So I think in year two, we go to Huntsville. And I remember the game started a little bit late because there was an ice issue. So happy hour in Huntsville got extended a little bit. So the fans came in there and they were just greased as all hell. And we're up three nothing at the end of one. And the building was packed. Every time we came in there, that building was packed. I will say this. That was a great environment to play. It was my favorite environment in the old Central Hockey League was going to Van Braun Center in Huntsville. Those fans were awesome. And so we get up 3 nothing in the first period, which normally we didn't do there. And there's five seconds to go in the first period. And there's a faceoff right in front of our bench. And I go down to John Paris, and I, and I say to John, I said, hey, John, call timeout. And he's like, what? I said, call timeout. And he's like, there's five seconds to go in a period. We're up 3 nothing. Why am I calling timeout? I said, because there's going to be a fucking brawl right now. I said, look what they just put on the ice. There's going to be a brawl right. It's call timeout. Nah, nah, nah. They're not going to do anything. Don't even worry about it. Well, before the puck drops, their goaltender charges, gloves go down, and we've got a six-on-six six going on in front of the bench. So this is all happening. Fans are going crazy. We're getting beer thrown at us and everything. It's, it's your typical minor league shit show. And I am trying to hold on to a couple of guys on our bench to not jump on the ice so that we don't wind up with guys jumping over and having more guys thrown out of the game and suspended because you got to figure all six on the ice are gone. Now, in the Central League at that time, you could only dress three lines and three sets of defensemen. So we would be down to two lines and two sets of D. Anybody jumps over the bench, it's, you know, it's now men's league. And so I'm holding on to guys, and referees are trying to get this sorted out, and the two benches are right next to each other, and there's a hallway behind, and both teams just use the same hallway to go to their dressing rooms which were across this hallway from each other. It was not well set up, and it changed that night. So the officials, instead of putting guys in the penalty box, sorting everything out and then guiding everybody back to the dressing room when order had been restored figure there's only five seconds to go in a period. Let's just get everybody off the ice. That's in this brawl and back to the dressing room. And then we'll sort it out. Well, what was happening was they were getting players off the ice into that hallway. They leave them go. And now they're fighting in the hallway. 
So you got fights on the ice. You got fights in the hallway. They're coming onto our bench. Just fight with our – it was a mess. And our head coach, just to give you an idea, was like I said, it was John Parrish Jr., a pioneer in hockey because he was the first uh, black head coach to win a major title. He won a Turner Cup with the Atlanta Knights in 94. That team right up above me there. And and John had a, had a health issue, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on, but it was one of those things where if he got hit or or bumped around a lot, could have been deadly. And I'm looking down the end of the bench, and John is standing there like in the scene from Lee Miz. Like he's standing there like guarding the barricade. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Then he's gone. And I'm thinking to myself, he's dead. Like, you know, he's not – he didn't run off the bench. He didn't go get help. He's dead. Like he got overrun. He's finished. So I'm looking around like, where the hell is he? So I go – I'm like, you know, whatever, the hell with this. The referees can deal with this. I leave. I get off the bench. I go running into the hallway. And in the hallway, there's a post. And chained to the post in handcuffs, bleeding from his eye, is John. And and if you ever saw the Jeffersons, if you saw Sherman Hemsley and the Jeffersons, that's what John looked like. They could have been twins. Yeah. So, so just to give you a visual. So John is standing there handcuffed to this post. And there's this big redneck cop standing right there next to him. And I'm looking at this in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm like, these are really bad optics. And I start screaming <laughs> at the cop. And, and I'm going up and down this guy. And I go for about 25 seconds. And John yells at me in French to shut up and come over there. And I understood him. So said, you know, shut up, get over here. So I, I walk over and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, listen to me. He goes, if they knew you were Jewish, you'd be chained to this post with me. He goes, shut the <laughs> fuck up. So, so that's a good point. So, so I, I kind of leave that scene alone. And John gets taken to jail. Lucky for us, uh, the GM, the business GM of the Channel Cats was Conrad Holloway, who is, everybody knows, is, was an all-American quarterback at Tennessee and was the first African-American quarterback to start in the SEC. So Conrad was a legend in that area. And he comes over to me and he says to me, he goes, you take care of your team. I'll take care of John and we'll deal with this when the game's over. Anyway, long story short, we had to go bail him out of jail. It was much like the slap shot thing. And for the first time in my life, I said, you know what? Life does imitate art. But that was, that was one of many brawls in Huntsville. But that to me was the one that more took on a life of its own than in the rest of them. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, as Noah said, we want to we want to get your take and your your perspective. You got as good a perspective as as I know, and those in the in the college hockey world as anybody. There's no pairwise. What the hell are we going to do this year, Dave? How's this going to work, man? Well, I'm going to put 64 teams in a hat and I'm going to shake it up and I'm going to start pulling names out. And that's going to be the national tournament. That's my suggestion. But I think that. I think there are certain teams that we all know. Obviously, conference champions will go. Now, I'm intrigued yeah. about the ECAC thing because you know, I think there's four teams left. But the I, I, I think that you take your conference champions for sure. And then after that, I think the eyeball test has got to be done by people that, have, for the most part, have had a chance to see every team in the country. Now, I've watched some teams on film. I've watched some games on film. I can't tell you that I've seen everybody live because I'm not scouting this year. But I right. do think that if you polled some of the NHL scouts that see the college teams, mm -hmm. they probably could provide a hell of a lot more insight as to who the best teams in the country are than most of the people whose polls you're reading online who probably see none of, yep. or, or, or maybe five of the teams that they're voting for. So I think the popularity contest has to be checked a little bit. Now, you get into two really interesting discussions. One is, how many teams do you put in that you know are going to move the meter? I know that's always a discussion we've had. Those Big Ten teams, they move the meter because they're yep. brand names. Notre Dame moves the meter. Wisconsin moves the meter. Michigan moves the meter. We get that. Boston yep. College will move the meter. They're a brand name nationally that teams yep. will, will understand. So, I mean, you get into a little bit of that, too. So, if you can get those teams in, that probably helps your viewership. 
On the other hand, you got to get the teams in that belong in there. You know, North Dakota belongs in the national tournament, right? St. Cloud State belongs in the national tournament. I think Omaha belongs in the national tournament. I mean, they have been I really agree. good this year. So you and and obviously Minnesota Duluth <laughs> belongs in the national tournament. To me, right now, those are your four bona fide NCHC teams to, to get in there. You know, now you got to talk about Denver's under five hundred. Then you got Western Michigan sitting there, and, and what are they going to pull off in the in the second half in terms of because what they have done minus their number one goalie who's going to carry the load. I mean, to me, Andy Murray's the coach of the year. You can you can yep. sign it now. Yeah. And I put Mike Gavin at a close second. I mean, you, like yeah. those those two stories are unbelievable. But now you got to look around the country and try to figure out who passes that eyeball test. And I do think a lot of my colleagues in the scouting community that do NCA free agency and amateur scouting, those guys could probably really help you shape what the national tournament could look like. Go ahead, boys. <laughs> what are you looking well, at me I'll for, ask, then. Um, So, do you feel my? And this could be tricky. Is it just the regular season champ in your mind? Or is if a team comes in and wins a tournament, I mean, obviously they're going to go, right? I mean, there's just no, there's no guidelines this year, right? Nothing to go by or what? No, I mean, like, and here's the thing. You and I have talked about this too. And I, I like when the fans discuss this also, because I think it's a, I think it's a great topic. Why do we reward the playoff champion and not the regular season champion? Like the regular season champions pairwise are probably good enough to get them in on a normal year anyway, right? So, I mean, True. you can make a case that it's both. But to me, I think winning the regular season championship is quite an accomplishment. Winning this playoff championship is really good. But yeah. that's – in some leagues, that's winning four games. Where in other leagues, it, it might be a little, it might be six or eight, you know, depending on which league you're in. But to me, you win the regular season championship, you're the best team in your league over 22, 24, 28 games. I think that says something. And sure. again, it'll make your pairwise good, but why do you not get an automatic bid if you don't win your, your league championship? Like I regular season wise. Like I've I've always thought about that counting and you know, having coach in the minor leagues where you're where you're where you win, you know, you got a 66, 68, 75 game schedule, whatever, if you're in first place at the end of that schedule. Like you deserve a little something. Yep. And I translate that to the college thing. If you're in first place after 28 really hard fought games, that should matter. And especially in the way that the season has gone for, you know, obviously the teams included too, you've had to put up with a lot of stuff. So um, boys. Yeah. Um, like one of the points that we talked about, cause we actually had, I don't know if it was, was it two weeks ago, guys, that we talked about yeah. this, about this and talked about how we would maybe do it. And one of the scenarios involved expanding the NCAA regional or the entry uh, pool to 24 teams, which rumor has it that they're going to stick with 16 uh, moving into the tournament. But uh, our biggest question mark is if you have a T if you have a league like the big 10 who arguably could pull five teams from the big 10 that could make this tournament, you could have, you could have your Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, maybe even Notre Dame and Penn state, if you feel that they're strong enough potentially. Um, but then what do you do with leagues like the ECAC that has four teams? I mean, even if you throw the independence in there for six total teams, um, is it fair to pull both a regular season champion and a playoff champion from a, from a league like the ECAC, which has, which half their field would essentially make the tournament just because of that regular stipulation. You know, that's a good point. Like, I'm looking at the ECAC standings right now, and you know, Quinnipiac is, is sitting there in first place, and, you know, they're always good. Like, Quinnipiac's one of those eyeball teams that you take a look yep. at every year. And, you know, Rand Pecknell does a hell of a job with that team, yeah. that program. And, I mean, Quinnipiac's one of those teams where I think, you know, you look at the national tournament, you can say to yourself, okay, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, then you look at Clarkson and Colgate right behind them. Colgate's under 500, but Clarkson's not. They're 4-4-4 four, four, four conference, nine seven four overall. 
I haven't seen Clarkson yet other than a little bit on tape for a period because I was cutting some clips, but you know, what, what do you do with them? So, I mean, I think that's a really good point. You know, then you shoot yep. yourself over to the big 10. And as I pull up the big 10 standings, I mean, I'm looking at the big 10 standings right now, Wisconsin, for sure. Minnesota, for sure. Notre Dame, for sure. Michigan, for sure. And now you get the Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan State. I know Penn State's kind of had a down season, but overall they're 500. Ohio State, Michigan State are underneath 500, so that might eliminate them from that conversation. But you want to sell me on Penn State being a national tournament? I will listen to that argument all day and all night. But once you get into that whole 16-team thing, you start moving around the country. Who are you knocking out? Because now you got to look at the now you got to look at Hockey East. Yep. And Hockey East is is where it gets a little <laughs> bit more interesting. So let's pull up Hockey East for a second. Yep. You got UMass and go Minutemen. You got UMass in first place, and <laughs> Benny certainly knows why I get excited about the Minutemen. So. Right. You know, Jared goes there. He's undergrad. So His son. Uh, UMass for sure. Boston College for sure. Yep. UConn's over 500. And uh, that's a good story. And UConn's a brand name team. So yep. th- that's fine. Providence is over 500. Northeastern's over 500. Boston University, they're over 500. So, like, you got a lot of teams. And then you go to New Hampshire and, and Lowell. That's where the deep line of demarcation starts. That's one, two, three, four. You're going to do six from Hockey East. Five for the Big Ten and four for the NCHC. I mean, there's your tournament right there. Yeah, without looking around the rest of the country. And I think the thing that throws throws a wrench in it too is you look at some of these leagues where teams have only played six or seven games. Do you do you reward these other leagues like the WCHA, which the WCHA could pull three teams as well, and they've also played a ton, and, and they've also played a ton of games as well. You've got Bowling Green, Mankato, Bemidji State has even had an okay year. I don't think their record reflects that, but they've beaten some pretty marquee teams. And then don't forget, you probably got to pull at least one, if not two, teams from Atlantic Hockey. You know, with AIC. Right. No. Oh, absolutely. And and I love AIC. Their, their head coach Eric Lang actually played junior for me, so I'm like I'm we, a big fan of AIC. We program. don't. We don't. Yeah, I understand that. I'm I'm right there with you. And don't forget, I called that game. So, uh, but yeah. um, I, I'll never forget. By the way, walking downstairs after that game, and I go over to Eric, and I'm looked at him, and he looked at me. And I went, I cannot believe what you just pulled off. And he goes, Okay, I'm not going to lie to you, either do I. So, <laughs> but, but but he did tell me right before the game. He said the only 25 people in the country <clears throat> think we can win this game are in our room. Like I mean, yeah. like he felt pretty good about going into that game with what their game plan was and. But you look at the WCHA, you make a really good point. Minnesota State, absolutely. Bowling yep. Green, absolutely. Yep. Michigan Tech, absolutely. Northern Michigan, absolutely. Bemidji State, uh, just having, you know, Saratory, just a uh, Tom Saratory in the tournament is worth its weight in gold. Not, yep. you know, without minus the team, just having him there is yep. worth it. But, you know, his team, he's got a good club and they've been good for years too. So I, I think that the scouts really need to get involved in this because I think they can give you a really good determination as to what the 10 at largest should be if we go with that conference champion takes it. Is that, is, I, I love that, Dave. I love the fact that you mentioned that. Is that something you're hearing discussed or is that just you feeling that's what they should do? No, this is my wake the hell up everybody and start talking to the yeah. scouts. I, I think chatter. you're dead right, man. I think you're dead right. You know, I mean, I, I, and I think they could provide a, listen, on a, on a normal year, when I'm scouting the NCAA for whatever, Toronto, Montreal, whoever I've done it for, yeah, I mean, I'm at 100 games by the time yep. the NCAA tournament rolls around, whether live as a scout, whether I broadcasted the game, whether I've watched the game on film to get ready for a broadcast, or mm-hmm. whether I watched the game on film just to take extra looks at players that I've scouted live. So I'm at about 100 NCAA games across all six conferences by the time I get there. 
I could pick the national tournament by myself on the eyeball yeah. test the most. And years. he normally has all the years we were together. <laughs> so I really think that like those guys provide, and those guys are no different than me. You know, I'm not special in that category. I mean, we're all the same when it comes to that. So I really believe that if you ask those guys, they could probably help you take the 10 teams that have not won their conference that you would give an auto bid to, and you would really get a really good barometer of, of who the national tournament is. That's, again, that's, that's one man's opinion but I know how good those guys are at their job when it comes to watching these teams. I think it's genius. I really do, man. Dave, I, I kind of want to follow up on this conversation because I think we've all bring up interesting points. Uh, just, and I, I want to compare it to college basketball a little bit. And here's why I want to do that right now. It's a 64 team tournament for the NCAA bracket out of over what a hundred plus teams. So you get about a 50% participation rate in that for the NCAA hockey of what, just about 61, 62 teams, you get 16. So my question is, I mean, we, we, we went through the conferences. We just listed the teams. Is it, time right now for the NCAA to expand permanently, whether it's COVID or not, the NCAA tournament. I think you can make an argument that there might be one there, but Dave, on your professional opinion, do you think that there's room to expand it to 24 or maybe even 32 teams, not only to just grow the game, but also to have a little bit more of a conversation and let these teams kind of play itself out and let the teams decide, not, not an eyeball test. It's, it's a fair point. I think a lot of it comes down to time in the schedule and that to me would be the determining factor. Do we have enough time to add an extra weekend or two into this? It's the college hockey is already the longest NCAA sport during the season. So you, you got that to play with, but you've got to look at this and say to yourself, where are we going to schedule these extra games? If we're going to have extra games and regionals, do we have one or two extra weekends to do this? And now you've got more sites to do this, or do you get into the super regional thing where you're bringing more teams into the same spot and you've got, maybe a play-in game to get into that single elimination. Well, then you might have to worry about is the team going to play five games in six nights, depending on how you get this schedule. I mean, it's not like baseball where you can play two games in a day and, and it works for you. So I think that's a consideration. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. And from the broadcast side, I'm like, absolutely. Cause that's a couple more invoices I can send out. But I, you know, I think that when you look at what the NCAA tournament is, I think there's a special feeling about the NCAA tournament on the hockey side because of the fact that there's only 16 in there. I mean, it, it, it you really need to have a great season to get into the NCAA tournament. And I think one of the things that makes the NCAA tournament special, and, and again, no disrespect to, to that St. Cloud State team that lost the AIC, but I really feel like the difference between the four and the one in a regional is much different than the one in the 16 in the basketball regionals. I, and I know everybody goes crazy over March Madness. I could care less about any game outside of like the seven, eight or, or the six, nine matchups. Cause those are games that can go either way. I have no interest in the one sixteens. I know there've been some two fifteen upsets, but I need some drama and drama tends to happen more towards the middle. And with the NCAA hockey tournament, the reason that you see so many fours and threes win in that regional semifinal is because the difference between the four and the one is not all that great. Dave, uh, um, first of all, we thank you for joining us. I know that you're kind of pressed for time, so we do only have a couple more questions for you. Um, I'm going to throw all three of mine out there, and let's see if you can keep up here. I want to know. He gets wanna, his money's worth, man. <laughs> I want to. I want to know number one: the time that Barry Trotz taught me how to cook, taught you how to cook. Number okay. two, number two, uh, your relationship in broadcasting with Kenny Albert, and uh, how his relationship with your family, and number three. How much do you miss working with Ben Holden and do you wish you could work with him again? Let's start with number three. <laughs> you know, Benny and I were partners for 10 years and we've become like brothers. And 
I know some broadcast teams that have been together a while, and I think in these this day and age, sometimes it's rare for teams to to be together that long. But it's it's been a great ten years. I mean, Benny and I have probably done a hundred games together, if not more. And I think that we understand each other and what the other one brings, and are very respectful to the other one's area of expertise on a broadcast. And and without him, I wouldn't know where to you know where the camera was. So I mean, I think that's important <laughs> also. And but but I you know can, if. If Ben and I get the opportunity to work together again somewhere, I would take it in a heartbeat. And let's not forget Shereen, who's our number three. You know, she kind of centers our line and keeps both of us straight and make sure we both yeah, she makes sure we both go to bed on time so we can get up the next morning and do the game. So I <laughs> I think that you know, I think we were a really good trio because we really understood each other. And you know, Shereen and I are married, so obviously we do a lot of work together uh in prep, but we talked to Benny all through the week. Ben and Shereen have known each other longer than I've known either one of them. And Ben and I worked together once before we got back together again before Shereen was on our crew. So we've all had a chance to have worked as colleagues with the other one at different times, which is why I think our tandem worked so well. And, and I do hope somewhere down the road that we get to happen again. And Benny knows how much I miss him. And you know, we still talk a lot, even, even off camera. Uh, yeah. The Barry Trotz thing, this is great. During the 1991-92 season, you know, Kenny Albert and I were the broadcast team for the Baltimore Skipjacks. And, and I was practicing with the team once in a while and doing some some work with Barry in the video room. And that, that, it was just, it was a great thing. And and Jack Button was the head scout for Washington. And, and you know, Jack had Kenny and I doing this, what we didn't know at the time was really an early analytics sheet on Baltimore after every game. So like there was a lot of cross going on between peer personnel and people. We're on a road trip and Barry and I were rooming on that trip and we we go to New Haven and we're in New Haven on a Tuesday and then a Friday. Instead of going back to Baltimore, we stayed there at a residence inn. So Barry looks at me and he says, Hey, let's, let's go. We're going out. And I figured, you know, right on, we're going out. And we wound up going to the supermarket. And <laughs> so we're picking melons and fruit and chicken and sauce and stuff. And I'm like, I thought it's going to be like night on the town with, with big Trotsy. Like I was all looking forward to having a great time. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, we're going to save our per diem money. We're going to buy food and we're going to cook. He says, you know, those residents have, kitchens in them so we get back to the room and you know he's teaching me how to how to pound chicken cutlet and what sauces work with with different cuts of meat and you know how you how you measure up the vegetables to put the right amount of vegetables in and what sauce to use and how to not burn the sauce and i'm looking at this i'm like okay so this guy's taught me how to do video this guy's taught me how to run a practice this guy's taught me how to be a future coach and now he's teaching me how to cook and kenny didn't cook like kenny was the takeout king of owings mills maryland so like for <laughs> I, I remember calling kenny i'm like Oh, you're the luckiest guy in America right now. He goes, I'm learning how to cook. And Kenny's like, great, we're going to save a fortune. So it was Barry <laughs> teaching me how to cook, which led to Kenny eating better. And that's how that started. But Kenny and I have been friends a long time, dating back to, I think, like our senior year in high school. And we ran across each other a lot when I was first starting out in the business, working at, at Sports Channel America with, with, with doing some Devils and Islander stuff. And, and then Kenny and I obviously got hooked up in Baltimore together and you know, we like Benny and I, you know, Kenny and I were are still like brothers today. And, and he is the godfather of my youngest son, Ryan, a up and coming little badass 05 defenseman. And that's and, right. And Kenny, I was Ryan just loves us and Kenny do games on the air. And, and it's just been a, it's been a great, I had a little thing on the screen. It's been a, uh, a great friendship. And we, you know, we still talk a ton, not as much as we used to when we were roomies, but it's always good to share some stories. And like, it's funny. He texted me last night and he said, Hey, how many years have Adam Fox and Charlie McAvoy played together? Cause I know you've known them both since they were kids. And I wasn't really sure how to call Charlie's dad to ask him. And even I didn't know this. I didn't know they were together. They were defense partners for seven years wow. prior to going to the national program. And then obviously going their different ways as pros. So I, yeah. I love 
I love my friendship with Ben. I love my friendship with Kenny. Uh, and it, it is amazing the kinship that you can build together with a broadcast partner when you're there long enough. If I'm not mistaken, Kenny Albert is actually the only broadcaster in North America that does all four major sports, if I'm not mistaken. I, and probably yeah. some sports that we don't even know about. Like, it wouldn't surprise me to turn yeah. on the TV, TV and see him doing cricket or checkers or, you know, he's just – He's becoming a jack. He's unreal. I mean, he really is. I, I know sometimes that legacy kids get the get the raw end because people are like, oh, well, if his dad wasn't this, that, and everything, he wouldn't be there either. And let's all be honest about it. You know, having having somebody pioneer in front of you and your family certainly helps. Yep. But Kenny has earned everything and more that has come his way because of his humility, because of his work ethic, because of the knowledge of the product. And because of his ability to be a great teammate with his broadcast partners. I mean, like Benny, he knows how to tee up an analyst. He knows how to work with an analyst. He knows how to keep a broadcast moving. He knows when to turn into a talk show versus just play by play. Like he could take the temperature of a game, understand what the fans are feeling and thinking and hearing and translate that into a really enjoyable experience for somebody who's watching the game. And he's just been around so many big events because of being the stats guy for his dad, who did so many events and, and also his uncle, Steve and Al, that he's just got a great command of the history of all these games, but his humility is off the charts and he's just, just the nicest guy in the world. I mean, that's really what he is. And I, his success does not shock me. I got uh, one more question for you, Dave. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, actually, before I do that, uh, just because I, I think it encapsulates the end of the podcast, uh, Benny, do you got one more? Me? Yeah. Yeah. You, you guys go ahead, man. I guess the only question I was going to ask you, Dave, was, you know, obviously St. Cloud, uh, they, they split last weekend with Western Michigan. Uh, going into, uh, you know, suppose the dog days here at the end of the regular season, where does this team realistically stack up in terms of the rest of the NCAA world? And do they have a chance to go deep and maybe compete for a national championship? You know, so I'm looking over their lineup from their last game. And, and when I look at their personnel, I say to myself, yes, they, they match up pretty well. I like their defense core. I mean, between Donahue Perbix. Bushy and Meyer, that's a really good top four. And Pervix is a really good puck mover who can, who can score. Uh, Meyer's got a great shot, and he's got really good anticipation coming in off the point. I like what Bushy's done. He's just steady. And Donahue, I mean, he's not Jack Sean, but he's, he has been able to fill a little bit of that role that, that Sean left over, both the dog beat in his game and, and the puck moving ability. And like I said, I'm a huge fan of Jay Cox. He could play for me any day of the week, just the personality that, that kid has. And you got to build from the center to the D to the goal. Walker is a really good two-way center. Sam Hentges can, you know, if he gets hot, can score in bunches. Uh, Cronel, I love his hockey sense, love his shot, love his ability to play on special teams. You know, Will Hammer, the name says it all. And when you look at the flanks, I mean, they've got they've got good players on their flanks. We mentioned Miller, who's become a little bit of a, you know, pain in the ass to play against. And Brodzinski can score. Okabe's got a lot of jam in his game. Cockrell's got a little physical presence to him, and he's a veteran. Fitzgerald, I've, I've always liked Fitzgerald. Like, to me, he's a little jack-of-all-trades kind of play. You know, Mittenen is – or Mittenen, I can never pronounce his name right, but, you know, he gives you some scoring. And Molinar has been a good little addition to the team. So and, – and I know we talked about Rennick before. I do think Rennick can give you the big game that he needs, and I do think that Jackson Caster has given you a couple also. So can this team make a run? Absolutely. And, and the best part is they're so well coached. I and mean, they've got such a great brain trust. And Brett Larson, to me, is – is a really, really progressive coach. Dave Shyack, I think the world of, and, and obviously Nick Oliver is, he's got a great brain in his head. So between that whole group, yeah, they can, they can absolutely make a run. 
Nick, shocker on this one. I thought of one more quick one, not to steal Dave away from his practice here. All right, number one, Dave, first of all, why don't you follow us on Twitter? We're kind of offended. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll, I'll do it. No problem. <laughs> uh, you will. <laughs> hey, I just got ripped by Steven Nelson, who was my world junior partner for three years. He's like, you know, you don't follow me on Twitter. I said, I, I have no idea. So I'll follow you right now. So I'll do it. I promise you. Um, but my next question does come from Twitter. Um, and first of all, both of you did a fantastic job in the pod. Um, I'd love to hear about that experience. But moreover, um, with the territory of being a broadcaster that does a game that a lot of people are watching, people tend to give you some shit sometimes. Uh, and I love how you're pretty even keel most of the time, but occasionally you'll kind of you'll kind of snap it and then and then bring it back. Um, what is it like uh, interacting with fans, you know, when they kind of give you that constructive criticism? And if you could tell those fans that like to give you a hard time about broadcast, what would you want them to know about how difficult this profession actually is when you get down to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, it's, I always tell people it's hard work, but it beats working. And there, there is a lot of preparation that goes into it. There's a lot of different things that go into it. Like what the fans don't know is what goes on in the booth. You've got a producer and a director that both are in your ears for a good chunk mm -hmm. of the game. And while they don't talk to you a lot, there can be a time where maybe a fan is expecting you to say something and you've got a producer in your ear taking you in a different direction, or maybe your partner is trying to signal something to you about something they want to get in and you respect that and you go. So maybe you're talking to your partner in hand signals. Maybe you're on talk back talking to the guys in the truck, the producer, the director about something you might want to see again. So something could happen on the screen, you or the game, you may not see it because you're thinking about something else you might want to show the viewer somewhere down the road and you might miss something. And they're like, well, he's not even paying attention. Or he doesn't see it or what an idiot. So, I mean, like that stuff happens. So that's part one. Part two is I, if somebody walks up to me and says, Dave, you suck. I will gladly say to them, I can buy that argument. You just got to tell me why, you know, I mean, like, like, that's me. I mean, I like, listen, there are nights I get off the air and I turn to Ben. I went, Oh my God, would I like to burn that film? Like I didn't think I was, had a great command of that game tonight, but like most athletes. And I use the term for me as an athlete very loosely for my playing career, but like most of us who've been in that role, you want to give us feedback. I don't care if it's negative feedback or positive feedback. I want the feedback. Like I hate when people say to me, Hey, you called a great game tonight. Well, why? You know, just, I just don't just say that. Give me an example of what you liked or, Hey, Dave, you weren't very good tonight. You suck. Okay, great. Why? Give me a why. I will listen to your argument. If you just spout off to be a jackass, then I'm going to have a little fun with you. And more than likely I'm going to forge it and feed you to the wolves and you can have it out with them. And he does it well, boys, as you know. Yes, he does. He I take a lot of satisfaction when you give the shit back that you've gotten over the years and all the times we've worked together. <laughs> well, the best is some guy once said to me, do you ever shut up? And I'm like, I get paid by the word. Why would I stop talking? Right. And that guy became a, a great follower. You know, I mean, right. like, so like every once in a while, if you engage him a little bit, it tends to simmer things down. Sometimes they may just want to get a rise out of you, but. But I'm serious. Like, I, I if, if somebody hammers me on a point saying, I can't believe you thought that was a really good play, yada, 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 I'll say, well, here's why I did. If you don't, that's fine. But let's agree to disagree and move on. Like, I, I don't think arguing in that medium over something as innocuous as, as a hockey game is worth me getting my blood pressure all that high. It's high enough. And <laughs> that is the last thing I'm going to let raise it. So, and, and then if you just, if you don't engage intellectually and respectfully, then I just block. But if you want to have a conversation, I'm more than willing to have it. 
David, it, it's been fantastic. We know that you are short on time. So I uh, thank you for coming on board. Uh, hopefully, either in Grand Forks or Fargo, we get to uh, cross paths again. Uh, again, you've been an absolute joy. Uh, good luck against, uh, again tonight on your coaching dues. And we'll just have to do it again soon. You've been great. Thanks again for joining us, Dave. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'm going to follow you guys on Twitter right now. And anytime you want to do round two, like I'm all in. So thanks again for having me. Dave, thanks, thanks for again. Enjoy practice. All right, guys, take care. Take care, Dave. If you're looking for more Huskies Warming House podcast content, there's a place for that. Visit us at huskieswarminghousepodcast.com and follow our Twitter page, at Warming House Den, for the latest news, notes, updates, prizes, and more. Don't forget you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, and more. We also are on Google Podcast and would love to hear your feedback on the show. Drop us a line at Husky's Warming House Podcast at Outlook.com or leave us feedback in the feedback section of the Huskies Warming House Podcast website. And finally, if you know any Huskies hockey alumni who would love to be on the show, let us know and we just might make it happen. And once again, thanks to Dave Starman for joining us. I would say that show would be characterized as absolutely fire. I don't know about you guys, but uh, um, just a great guy. You know, you're I, a millennial. I, you should say it's lit. I, it's lit, man. It's lit. I hate it's that. Lit. I hate that phrase. Can I put that out there? Like, I'm not a big it's lit guy. It's just as you well know, Noah, you're not much older than my son. So, and he uses that phrase a lot too. Yeah. That. Yeah, it's lit, bro. Check out how I have 50 grand in college debt and no job, bro. Like, that's how I feel. Anyway, um, Dave was a lot of fun here. Um, I, I don't know. We haven't had our guests set up for um, this following week. But Nick, as far as men's and women's hockey, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, we have the men's team coming up one game a Saturday, Matt and Nagam against Colorado College. And then the women's team. Team. Are they, are they, no, they were off last week. So it's Ohio state this weekend. If I'm not mistaken, yep. Ohio state on the road for the women's hockey team, men's hockey, like you mentioned, Colorado college followed by Minnesota Duluth women's hockey the following weekend against Bemidji state. That will do it for the healthy scratch interview segment with a frozen Nick Max and next to me episode number 49. And we'll see you next week in the deck. <laughs>